Welcome to Down in Bloomington, a conversational podcast about the rich musical history of Bloomington, Indiana. I'm lucky to be joined today by Kevin Loyal. Kevin is the bass player of The Walking Ruins. The Walking Ruins was one of the first local Bloomington bands that I ever heard of. I went to the same high school as Kevin, but he graduated a few years before I did. I remember running into Kevin at the local coffee shop in Broad Ripple a little while after he had already moved to Bloomington. He was excited to tell us about his new band. I remember he showed us a flyer, or maybe it was a cassette tape. It would be a few years before I made my way down to Bloomington, and probably several months after that before I ever caught The Walking Ruins at a live show. I'm looking forward to hearing Kevin's recollections of his time performing in the Walking Ruins, recording with them, and the things that he has done within the Bloomington music scene over the years. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kevin Loyal. Espresso, mm-hmm. and you were like really excited to tell us about your new band, and and I I was in the in the intro I was trying to remember if you had a cassette or a flyer of the Walking Ruins, but it was the first time I'd ever heard of a local band from Bloomington. It was it was during that conversation. Oh, okay. Do you do you remember at all whether it was a cassette or whether it was a. Because you were, I, I just, in my memory, I have the image and you are. On the top de- of the de- world. You were depicted in it. 
in the, in the flyer or the cassette, but you were <clears throat> super stoked about the walking rooms. Um, that makes sense to me as a memory. Um, it was probably a flyer. Yeah. Because I didn't come up to Indy that much as the band started getting going right before and right probably at the beginning I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a girlfriend that drove, and that really helped. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I was still coming up to Indy. Like, I actually, to play in the band, I had to come get my bass out of a pawn shop to play this. Um, and that was probably late 86. No, it would have been 87. Because we formed in 87. So, so the Walking Ruins were not a band that already existed when you joined? No. Uh, the, the Walking Ruins initially got together for what was to be a one-off performance at a snowy night uh, uh, art multimedia poetry kind of night put on... Uh, uh, it was usually put on by Bill Weaver, but this was a an evening where they did a fake talk show. Uh, a gentleman named Jim Hurd, who was a really good friend of John Terrell's drummer in The Walking Ruins, he decided to do the Jim Hurd show, and they introduced all the different acts. And John Barge, singer of The Walking Ruins, was his, his Ed McMahon kind of second banana kind of guy. Um, and they needed a house band. So it was what became the Walking Ruins with uh, Brian Carney uh, of the Rosebloods on saxophone and a trumpet player. And we did a couple of songs. My favorite memory of that evening is we were at the, inter- we played right before the intermission and after we get done, uh, Ian Brewer, the guitarist in Walking Ruins, is on the mic and s- starts raising his fist and screaming out uh, the worker-controlled means of production kind of level of, like, labor, you know. And all our punk rock friends who came to see us immediately rush the stage and start screaming and yelling and waving their hands and they pick Ian up and they carry him out the back door to the alley as he's still raving and screaming and they're all hooting and hollering. Um, So that kind of really set the stage for what the walking rooms were going to be. How did you connect with those guys prior to that? Um, Ian lived in a house with a couple other friends of mine. So I'd I'd, I'd met him in passing. Mm -hmm. And they were having a house party. And my recollection is that I was sitting on the couch, and Ian and John were sitting on the floor in front of me. And we're having many beers. Um, And we started talking about music. Um, I remember a long, passionate conversation about Elvis Costello and and the bitter cynicism and, and politics of some of that. Um, with John Barge, and it came, I mentioned that I played bass, and we talked about maybe we should get together and jam sometime, and John really honed in on, ooh, bass player, younger kid, he, you know, so he starts peppering me with questions, um, you know, 
about the replacements, about Husker Du, about slightly later than he was punk rock he had been exposed to, but he knew that that was like, that's where it was going. And he wanted to find a player that was young enough to like really be into that. Um, and Husker Du, Zen Arcade changed my life. It was the first time I realized you can play punk rock and other kinds of music all mixed together much more than a lot of other stuff I'd run across. And, you know, of course, I grew up with, you know, in high school, I listened to 60s radio because my other choice was the Thompson Twins. So if I'm going to make a choice, that's what I'll do. Not that I probably couldn't do, you know, safety dance at karaoke night if I really had to. But, <laughs> but you know, the... So we are having this conversation, and then he really started going in and asking me the important questions that come from a very, very DIY punk place, which is, well, can you tune your bass? <laughs> and I admitted I could. Um, you know, at that point, I didn't tell him that, yeah, I can actually read music, and I actually have some music theory background, and I'm coming at punk rock from the a more polished place than just going, hey, let's be in a band. Um, but I appreciate that attitude so much. Um, so we were talking and John got up to go to the bathroom. And, you know, I'm, uh, I had just moved to Bloomington in the fall of 86. Uh, met the woman who would be my wife. Uh, you know, was, was just... Working a job is still kind of, well, I might have been homeless at the time. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Um, <clears throat> no fixed address. There was couch surfing involved. Um, and so John goes into the bathroom and he's talking to himself, thinking, I like this guy, but man, how can anyone's glasses be that dirty? <laughs> And then he's sitting there washing his hands and he looks up in the mirror and realizes that in fact, his glasses are that dirty. To me, years later, that was the moment that Walking Roads became a band. Because just something that simple and stupid yeah. was like, oh, okay, yeah, we could do this thing. Um, and you know, the Walking Roads very luckily for me, I'm the youngest member. I was 20 when we started. Um, John Terrell, the drummer, is our oldest member. He's 10 years older than me. And at that point, I mean, he had been the drummer in the Dancing Cigarettes. And, you know, they threw their stuff in a van and DIY toured in the mid-80s, which is, like, to me, climbing the mountain. Yeah. Because people were not doing... I mean, yes, bands were doing that, but it was, it was a very different thing than it became later in the 90s. Um, and, uh, he himself had the, after, after touring around, uh, the dancing series ended up in New York and he had just returned to Bloomington that spring in 86. So we came to Bloomington like six months apart. Um, and, uh, Ian and John, of course, were in the panics, um, legendary Bloomington punk rock band. That single is still one of my favorite slabs of just youthful aggression. Um, 
So walking into that with that kind of history, um, while I wasn't really aware of the history at the time, these are just people I'm like, you know, we're having a beer and having band practice. But like over time, I kind of realized yeah. that like, oh, that that makes a difference. Yeah, they're, um, they're connected to a past. Certainly, and and you know we we always tried to do that. We covered other Bloomington bands. Um, the Dale Lawrence era Gizmos, uh, Billy Nightshade songs were super huge for us. Uh, we covered maybe six of them. Um, basically, if you wrote it, we'd at least give it a shot. Um, I, I think that was one of the things that I liked a lot about The Walking Ruins was that you you gave a certain uh, respect to the bands that were around before or that were part of Bloomington. Right. Um, we actually, for for uh, one of Denise Self's uh, uh, Urnites at Second Story, which were kind of... Uh, they were, again, you know, a performance art, art, video, music, kind of multimedia art show. Um, we actually did a set of our peers, Bloomington Bands. You know, because it's one of those insane things. You get up, you throw your stuff on stage in less than five minutes, and just plug in and go. You know, no soundtrack, no nothing, just go. And um, we were always that kind of band anyway. Um uh, but the we did an Arson Garden song um, which actually had April from Arson Garden afterwards doubled over with laughter she was trying to make it to the stage to tell us how funny it was but she could not actually even talk she had tears in her eyes it was it was it was I and that was so satisfying you know because it, it it is ludicrous to do. Yeah. Because, I mean, you look at somebody like, you know, James and April and Arson Garden and what we do, it's right. like they're, they're very different sides of the underground yeah. perspective. You know, we did them, we did uh, Trailside Killers, you know, I, I can't remember who else we, we covered. Other than playing at Second Story, where were you able to play shows? There were street dances, right? Street dances were a big, big part of the early Walking Ruins. Um, uh, most of them were either, I believe, WQAX, the cable station, or our friend Eric White, who is... If there's a fifth Walking Ruin, he might be it. The argument also is that my wife is, because... There was a point in the Walking Ruins where no one had a car, and my my wonderful wife actually would would carry everything to the gig in the back of his Chevette. <laughs> um, uh, Eric actually uh, uh, co-wrote one of the songs on our first Do you cassette. Which one? It's called "Rock for No Reason." Yep. After his festival. Yep. Um, and he put us on there, um, but he was always a super booster, super help. Yeah, his, his uh, YouTube video where he explains kind of the connections of the various bands. Yeah, he uses a whiteboard and he's pointing at the whiteboard with various uh, garden tools. Yes, I do. I, yes, it's one of my favorites. That is exactly Eric, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I mean, we had 
it's very weird. We had a lot of supporters that were extraordinarily passionate about what we did. We weren't the band that were going to go throw our stuff in a van and go play everywhere. Um, fairly early on, the idea of getting on stage um, was was that you get up there, you give it your all for your friends who are in that moment losing their minds, and you have this like almost ecstatic ritual. And taking that on the road requires requires accepting that that's not always the way it's going to be. Right. And none of us were necessarily interested in that yeah. side of it. And, and maybe what I hear you saying also is that the audience was a part of your show. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Play, playing house parties in basements in Bloomington, um... I remember one party at uh, the corner of Second and Fast. I am fairly sure that the ductwork came down in the basement during our set. Um, I think we got out of there fairly quickly afterwards because fingers might be pointed. But traditionally, I mean, our home base was Second Story. Mm -hmm. um, we could play Second Story once a month, regardless, pretty much, once we once we kind of established ourselves, and in the early days of Second Story, you got 50 people in. That was fine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, by the early 90s, you know, we could, good night, 200 people at Second Story, because everyone was going to Second Story. Um, so we played there. Uh, we'd always try to, like, throw in a house party or two. We did some Indianapolis gigs. We did... Uh, Around Indiana and down uh, just across the river, Kentucky. Um, but none of those were regulars, per se. Um, you know, part of it is we were all trying to, you know, work jobs and eat. And none of us necessarily had the most dependable car. None of us ever had a van. So it wasn't like we were just going to be able to, like, throw stuff in and go. Um... <clears throat> but yeah I mean that it, the house party scene was really great actually that was a large part of of, of of the of the scene around the time there were a couple of there were a couple of summers where if you know somebody was like oh there's a party you're like well who's playing yeah were there, were there more than one bands usually playing at the house party? Yes, actually, usually. Um, uh, and it would turn... it The way it seemed to happen... I was never an instigator, so I have no idea. I'd just show up with my bass and my amp and make noise. Um, was And I'd have probably been at the party anyway, so I might as well bring my bass and amp and have, have a set. Um, was someone... Someone involved in the party or a friend of a friend would end up asking a band to play. And that band is like, well, it's a party. I don't want to play for two hours because I want to play my set and go have a party. Right. So they'd ask someone else to play. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the Trailside Killers were playing at a party, they might call us and say, hey, you want to play before us? Hey, can we use your stuff? Yeah. So, right. you know, back lines there. Then I got to show up with just my bass. Right. I don't even have to worry about an amp. Right. 
Um, so that kind of stuff happened a lot. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, How did the Rock for No Reason show happen? And, and tell me a little bit about that whole experience. That's right when I came into the band. Okay. Was was this had been a plan that Eric White had of bring, just DIY, bring punk rock bands from all over um, and play in a cornfield in Indiana, which is, is it, it is such, he was looking for the Midwestern punk rock Woodstock. Yeah. Knowing it wouldn't be Woodstock size, but that was like, you know, that model of, you know, if you build it, he will come kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, and so he, uh, John and Ian and Eric and another friend of ours all lived in a house over the summer of sublet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we always called it the house for no reason, because Eric was really involved in the in the in the rock for no reason. Um, there was a there was a film Eric was making that we were going to do the soundtrack for, called Punk Rock Communists from Hell. Um, and there's footage out there, and I know there's music, but I don't think that the whole thing's ever been fully put together. Um, the Walking Ruins had already been practicing. We practiced in the basement of the house for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that's probably where we started, because I've seen her recall some of our very first songs in that basement. Eric decided that, that he wanted to do this insane thing, and in the late 80s DIY aesthetic he was able to he randomly contacted bands that he ran across from you know Maximum Rock and Roll or Flipside or other fanzines and was like hey do you want to come play and I don't know how many requests he sent out to different bands and but a huge number of them were like sure we'll do this now, some of those bands never arrived, right? Um, and you know, he didn't really have backline for the thing because that wasn't his his thing. Um, luckily, he had multiple generators because sometimes generators go down. Um, I ended up going out and we played the first night of that festival mm-hmm. out in the middle of nowhere. So it was multiple nights. Yes, I believe it was three nights. Part of the reason being that I went out there and I was I actually got the flu. Oh man. So I was playing the show with a multiple high above one hundred degree temperature. Whoa. Feeling worse and worse and worse. And of course everything is running late. And finally we get done and I was able to get a ride back to town and I was out for the rest of the festival. I could not go see anybody else. I've seen footage, but I have, uh, yeah. for me, Rock For No Reason is is a very strange, high fever, uh, nearly hallucinogenic experience. <laughs> um, I, I do remember before we went on, the guy whose bass amp I was using, because he had a gorgeous, huge Ampeg SVT, um, and he had been talked into letting other bands use it. And this is now five, six hours later. He was done. 
Um, and he's coming up to stage to take away the bass amp that I'm just about to use. Oh, man. And I honestly, my memory of this is that um, I ended up playing through some kind of fairly tiny bass practice amp that couldn't get louder than the drums and went a lot. Um, that's really my only memory of Rock for No Reason. Yeah. It, it it's sort of has a legendary status in in people's telling, but I've never heard a full telling of the experience. Like I I, I leave these conversations with the impression that maybe a lot of people weren't there for the whole thing, or if they were, there's real big blank spots in their recollections. There is a lot of blank spots in people's recollections. Um, as someone that tried to find out what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, part of it is the people involved in running it. Um, there was so much mayhem, anxiety, can't stop, got to get this done going on that I don't think they actually built those memories. Um, the other thing is that that in in talking to people about this, for me, it, it people have certain big memories of moments, but as a whole. It's kind of this whole foggy just time period for them. Yeah. Um, you know, the fire at the end of it is probably mm -hmm. one of my favorite bits of it. Um, that that one of our friends had a, a beater VW Bug, um, and 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 he had driven it out into the middle of the fields to be camping, and he'd been camping all day, days. Yeah, and. They had actually found, I believe, a drum of a washing machine and had used it for a fire pit. And upon his leaving, because the ground was a little mushy, he had to go back and forward in his little VW. And he actually knocked over his fire pit, which he thought he had put out, maybe. Um, and it ended up burning the whole field. So the end of Rock for No Reason, everyone is leaving and there is this apocalyptic fire that burns the whole field. Whose property was this? And I do not know. I wonder if they... Uh... They were not happy about it, from what I understand, from what has been relayed to me. I have never asked details, because those are not the kind of details I want to know. Right. It, it's a better story not knowing Absolutely. all the details. Let my brain fold in. It's much happier. Absolutely. When did the Walking Ruins decide that they were going to commit their music to to posterity? Originally, our, our very first thing, um, our friends, uh, the Nids, the Nihilistic Nids, uh, uh, Sean McLeod was, was, was their front man. Um, they knew some guy in the middle of nowhere who had a basement studio. Um, and I think he ran, he like ran a record shop in Muncie or somewhere. I have no idea. I, honestly, I have no idea where we recorded. <laughs> I can picture the room, but where that room sits in the rest of the space of Indiana, yeah. no idea whatsoever. Um, uh, so we got in touch with him and we're like, hey, can we do this and and he cuts a deal 
and it was uh, uh, that was probably 87 88 mm-hmm. um, you know at that point you know putting out a cassette was about as good as you could get unless you could like really scrape the money to get vinyl together but cassettes were fine yeah um, so that was our intention and went up there and we recorded our whole record um, likely even in order um, uh, in a day mm-hmm. um, we wanted to mix it then and there but he, he kind of balked at that um, can't imagine why <laughs> um, <clears throat> he'd already had these yahoos for a good you know six hours um so we came back up another weekend and mixed the whole thing, mm-hmm. one and, session. And this is the fall of the House of Ruin. No, no, this is this is a cassette that was called "Going Down the Tubes," um, which we will maybe be putting out. There's discussion, um, and uh, honestly, it took us a good six years of a ten-year career to put out a CD. Yeah. Um, uh, in that interim, we put out, uh, uh, we recorded Homegrown Studios here in Bloomington and did a another cassette release called Cannon Fodder for the Class War. Um, and then we had a couple of little, uh, a couple of four tracks we pushed around for mm-hmm. a while. Um, but we were a very shoestring budget band. Yeah. Um, Which is part of the appeal of the walking room. Oh, well, we... Throughout ten years, we never, ever played a show with a full complement of equipment. Really? We're really proud of that. We may have to borrow a tuner. We may have to borrow a cymbal stand from your drummer because we have a crash cymbal but no stand. Um, every time we played, we had to borrow something before we played, um, which kind of speaks to where we were coming from. Right. It, it's We have a commitment, but it's not a commitment to that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, no, literally... Uh, for a while it was crash symbols. Then John found a crash symbol, and then it became a stand. Um, and then when he got a snare, I think, well, our snare got stolen at one point. That so we had to borrow one there. He, we were loading out a second story, and somebody in many of the multiple trips had left the car unlocked. And some drunken young man came by and saw that there was a snare drum, and he yoink. Yeah. Um, you know, which is, uh, you know, I have friends in touring bands that have had, you know, their trailer locks cut and stuff. Absolutely. But, you know, I yeah. When you when you were playing out, uh, you said you played a lot of shows at Second Story. What were some of the other bands that you played with, and was there a particular? Um, group of bands that you felt like the Walking Ruins complimented or that they complimented you? You know, it's interesting because um, as far as the bar scene goes, mm-hmm. there weren't 
that many punk rock bands around, mm-hmm. in all honesty. Um, we enjoyed the bar scene. Mm-hmm. All of our musical peers were there. Um, but there were there were in, uh, punk rock bands in Bloomington, but they were, a lot of those were playing underage shows. Um, so, you know, we'd go do those things in, in whatever you know venue popped up for whatever reason. Um, but like most of those guys weren't bar bands. We always felt as as strange and abrasive as we might be. We could probably play in front of anybody and have win them over by the time we were done. Um, uh, that hasn't always happened. Um, I've, I've, I, we were playing, I believe, in Terre Haute once, and uh, we finished the song just fast, super tight, going bump. Dead silence. Nothing. Like the crickets had left. Kind of silence. <laughs> um, um, so, we've had that. Yeah. Which, which actually we were kind of proud. We've cleared a room. Um, I believe that was the evening we cleared the room. Um, and I, I always take a certain pride in that. Sure. Because, um, you know, I mean, it's not something I'd want to do on a regular basis. It's not a goal. <laughs> But it is kind of a badge of honor to be making the music you want to make. Yeah. And everybody's just like, whoa, no. Yeah. Too much for me. And that's fine. Doesn't work for everybody. That's okay. So, but but as far as it goes, playing with bands, um, the early days, uh, Pitbulls on Crack, members of whom became uh, Turoside Killers. Who also beca- then became uh, Speed Luxury, yeah. and these are our friends. We love playing shows with them. Yeah. Um, Peter Hove, who went by Frankie Camaro at the time, mm-hmm. um, he lived in a house with John and Ian and me at one point. Um, uh, the infamous uh, First and Grant House, which was a long-term rock and roll place, wonderful house parties. Uh, I lived there for a while. Frankie and John and Ian lived there for a long time. The band practiced in that basement. Um, so we played with them a lot. Um, Pencil. Pencil yeah. was one of our favorite bands. Um, they I were a lot I haven't of thought about that band in a long time. Oh, uh, yeah. Carl was one of my favorite guitar players. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, them, uh, you know, when Pizzle came along, they were they were a wonderful kind of odd punk rock band to play with um but it you know it, it certainly varied i mean we you know one of my probably the biggest thing we did was we played uh you know in in 92 when when punk broke mm-hmm. um at least that's what all the magazines tell me exactly um we got the opening slot for uh the Offspring Rancid Tour in Indianapolis. So we got to play in front of 1,800 screaming kids. Wow, what was that like? It was very strange. It was wonderful. Apparently a young man broke his leg in the pit during our set. um, And he ended up going to the hospital and got back after the show was over and the Offspring invited him on their their tour bus, which I thought was really sweet. Yeah, that is Um, sweet. uh, 
No, that it was it was a wonderful, wonderful show. It was the first time I'd ever experienced from stage the that comes of a thousand people screaming at you. Yeah, like we got done and we turn around because it's like you know we're the local opener. We're on and off. You know, sound check is minimal. Blah blah blah. We're just yep. Get your stuff off. So I immediately turn around to turn off my amp. And as I do, I hear this. And I look up at John Terrell and he's looking at me and we're like, what is that? Oh my gosh, it does make that noise. It's a lot different than the silence of the crickets leaving in Terre Haute. Yes. Two sides of the same coin, I feel. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm not sure we didn't play a better set either time. Um, yeah. You know, uh, now interestingly, uh, being in that environment with minimal sound check, can't really hear on stage, just like going for it. Mm-hmm. We'd really actually for that show rehearsed. We we, we, we practiced a bunch because we wanted to like throw down as well as we could. Yeah. So, I think it was the next week or the week after. Um, it was a. Think around Thanksgiving break or something at IU. We were playing a show at Second Story with, uh, uh, I believe it would have been Speed Luxury at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just played the same set. And we had not rehearsed in, in the meantime. Right. And I had many friends come up to me afterwards going, What the heck was that? <laughs> and it's like, Well, that's the set we meant to play. <laughs> If we have not had all the other things going on, if, oh, this is a bigger show and we haven't had a sound check and we can't hear each other. But in Second Story, our home base, where we could just literally throw our stuff on in 10 minutes, no sound check, we trusted the sound man, they knew what we did, boom, we could just play. So in that environment, playing that same set, yeah. it was it was really fun. Yeah. Because, you know, you're playing to... At that point, you're playing to your friends, too. Do you feel like that was kind of um, one of the things that kept you guys playing, was that you were playing with friends, you were playing for friends, there was a community around it? Yes. Um, Like I said, because we weren't, we weren't touring. We weren't, Mm -hmm. we weren't working that side of the business. That Mm -hmm. didn't interest us very much. Yeah. John Terrell had tried that with the dancing cigarettes, and he just didn't have a lot of interest. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the rest of us might have, but none of us knew how to do it, yeah. and none of us were actually really well equipped to do it. Right. Um, you know, because it, it 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 takes some management and logistical organization to be able to do that, right. and we're a bunch of anarchists. We're not very good at that. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, honestly, I do think that that playing music in in the scene for our friends with a certain sense of history to it yeah. is part of why the Walker Ruins stayed together for 10 years. Absolutely. When did you guys get around to recording what would then become the fall of the House of Ruin, which, if I'm not mistaken, was kind of the first CD that you... That's the only CD we actually okay. put out officially. Um, at that point, uh, the drummer for Pizzle mm-hmm. worked at a studio in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And he could get us... Uh, Late night evening rights, because they did a lot of jingle work and stuff during the day, so it was it was it was easy to to come in on the cheap. 
couple of nights. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how we did that. I would say that was 90, mm -hmm. 94, 95, I think. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I, I could be completely right. wrong. Yeah. Um, and we we decided that, that, okay, it was time for a CD. You know, mm -hmm. cassettes were on their way out. CDs are yep. taking over. So uh, let, let's at least uh, pay lip service to the technology. Right. Um, and so that, you know, from the get-go, the recording, the intention was that. Was the idea of recording your stuff and putting it out on a CD more for posterity, or was it, was it, uh, were there other kind of ideas or ambitions around it? Part of it, I think, is that we recorded because that's what you do. Yeah. Um, uh, recording costs were always an option. Mm -hmm. um, and but we also understood that if you don't record something, it's just a good story. Yeah. So if you actually have some kind of document, regardless of how you feel about it, right? Because I know many bands that hate their own records. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't hate anything we did, but um, they're all very very different. Um, but just having it out there in the public sphere, mm -hmm. that you know maybe someone will hear it. Maybe someone will be interested in it. Right. No, maybe somebody wants to print 500 on vinyl. Yep. I mean, we weren't looking to, you know, no one in the band thought that someone was going to come to our practice space and discover us. Right. You know, we were, we're realistic that way. But it was, you know, that wasn't the impetus of being in the band. It's, it's four very good friends yeah. who are having a great time creating together. So, a, a, a a testament to that, I think, is when the Walking Ruins got together in the early 2000s and played at um, Uncle Fester's. Yes. There were people planning, you know, how to get here from out of town. And, um, I mean, it was, A, you filled the house. B, you had people coming from all points of the of the map. Yeah, to, East Coast, West Coast. Yeah. Chicago, we had... Um, I think a lot of that is that uh, because we were kind of around so long, mm -hmm. um, I hate the word institution, but um, the fact we were around so long and we were so ubiquitous to our friends, mm -hmm. that that power of nostalgia of like, oh my goodness, my friends are getting together to play. I need to be there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had... Uh, my friend Steve Bouton came from from the Pacific Northwest, yeah. and he had lived in the house we rehearsed in yeah. with Ian in very early days. And to him, it was like, "Yeah, I gotta come see this. This right. is you know, this is a once in a lifetime nostalgia moment." For right. Me. Well, but it also didn't like it, it. It it didn't feel like nostalgia. It felt very current when it was happening. You know it. it it what it didn't just feel like a bunch of um, you know folks getting like a, it didn't feel like a high school reunion. It felt like a, a real happening. Um, uh, John Vitella, who was the bartender at Second Story, mm -hmm. um, uh, I remember because uh, we did one, we did a couple shows around that that reunion mm -hmm. time and. Right before Second Story closed, I forget what year that was, mm -hmm. um, we played a set there. Yeah. Or at least a short set. 
Um, we were kind of into the 25-minute showcase set at that point. Um, we're getting old. Uh, if we're going to play that fast, we're not going to be playing 35 minutes. Yeah. Um, so uh, we got done, and afterwards he came up and was, was talking to me and complimenting us. And was like, he's like, it's like a lot of bands around here try, but you guys really just leave it all on the stage. And and I was like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. I had a good time too. Yeah, yeah. Because literally, that's the way I felt after a good good show. Yeah. Um, people would come up and compliment me and or the band, and all I can really say is thank you. I had a good time too. I'm glad you did. Yeah. And that's why we did it. And that's the best reason to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, a paycheck's not a bad. Bad thing, um, but it was never about that for right. us. Um, you know, I, I we actually once got to finish a recording. Um, a local booker actually uh, gave us a decent guarantee to make sure we could make the studio payment. Wow, that's pretty um, cool. Yeah, um, yeah. It was, we had support. Yeah, that's great. You know, there are archives. Right. We have recorded. Yeah. Um, I would like people to have the opportunity to hear them. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Um, we did just release a four-track recording on uh, Bandcamp. It's called Willems, mm -hmm. named after our friend Dan Willems, who recorded them. That I can't even tell you stories about how these were recorded. I have need, I have no memory of mm -hmm. really. Um, but we had digitized versions of of, of the recordings, so mm -hmm. I was able to go back and kind of. Try to pull the feel of the time period out of them. Yeah. Because um, they're never going to sound like a normal record because they're a four track. Right. Um, but, you know, they're, they're a great document of the time, and that's on Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have a uh, released fairly soon a single on Bandcamp. Um, and we're, we're at the point where, yeah, we can, you know, I'm, because I am an audio engineer, mm -hmm. um, I can at least like clean things up enough to get them out in front of the public, right? Um, and not feel horrible about it, right? Um, you know, all these recordings, of course, are they are odd because you know it's all by hook or by crook, right? It's all let's make a record. It isn't you know there's not there's not a lot of planning, there's not a lot of budget, so um, they're going to. They're going to sound like interesting documents of the time. Yeah. And so uh, that's the big thing, is, right. is to just get them out there in a listenable format. And we're, you know, over the next few years, we'll probably continue doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I personally, as somebody who, and maybe it is nostalgia, but the, I have a, I, I crave like that, that era of Bloomington's music, and uh, I miss it a lot, so... I, I love opportunities to track that stuff down. If it's not out there, it's just a good story. Yeah. And I love a good story. Right. I've been known to tell a few. <laughs> um, uh, truth and details be damned. But, right. Um, for me, that just to have it out there, that mm. people can actually hear it. Yeah. And 
the power of nostalgia. Most people that are going to be interested in what we do are people that had experienced it the first time. Right. Um, but, you know, also new folks happening on it and putting their own, like, where did this come from? Yeah. Kind of idea. I love that idea. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's like the Bukowski quote. <laughs> I kind of planned on f being famous after I was dead. <laughs> um, you know, because it, it's legacy. It's knowing that it's out there. Yeah. And, and, and having actually, in this digital age, the ability to find this music. Yeah. To pass it on to someone and go, hey, here's a really strange thing. Yeah. And just sharing it right. is, is, I think, a wonderful, wonderful thing, because, which is actually really related to uh, late 80s, early 90s cassette culture. Yeah. You know, making your friends mixtapes was very big in my life. Right. Huge. Um, and, and kind of being able to pass along in, in this digital age, just point people towards stuff. And, yeah. you know, whether they like it or not, you can, you know, they'll at least, like, plug into it for a moment. Absolutely. It, yeah, I, I think that's a great way to think about all of this. And um, it's been really fun listening to you talk about the walking rooms. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Ha ha ha, they're in charge. Ha 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 ha, they'll go far. Ha 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 ha. 